This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. American Ballpark. It's the Better Off Red Podcast. Here's your host, Jamie Ramsey. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another episode of the Better Off Red Podcast. We have a great show for you this week as we have two very special guests, Reds manager Brian Price and former Reds third baseman and current ESPN baseball analyst Aaron Boone. Before we get to this week's guests, allow me to remind you that the annual Reds caravan gets underway Thursday, January 28th with four tours simultaneously traveling in all directions throughout Reds country. All caravan fan stops are free and open to the public. The Reds consider the caravan the official kickoff to the new season of Reds baseball. And if the Reds caravan comes to a town near you, please stop by and say hello. For more information, visit reds.com caravan. And speaking of the caravan, I'll be once again traveling with my friends Ryan Rizzo, Marty Burneman, Chris Welsh, and Tucker Barnhart, as we head out on the East Tour with new additions to our bus crew that include Dimitri Young, Amir Garrett, and Red's Assistant General Manager Nick Kroll. I'm hoping to record podcast material while I'm on the trip so you at home can experience what it's like to travel on the caravan bus. Before we get to our guests this week, I'd like to introduce you folks to a band that became one of my favorites in 2015, Half Moon Run. They are a four-piece from Montreal with two full-length albums under their belt, including their latest album called Sun Leads Me On. Here's my favorite track off that album called Consider Yourself. This week's episode with Reds manager Brian Price. Brian recently joined us at Reds Fest to talk about the expectations for 2016, the crop of new talent coming up through the Reds system, as well as other topics that he tackles as the Cincinnati skipper. Here's Brian Price. Reds manager Brian Price is here with us. We're almost done, my friend. Boy, you can really draw him in there, Jamie, <laughs> huh? Me and all my friends are here. What's going on, Brian? Yeah, you know what? I'm still trying to live down that ridiculous picture you had me take uh, when I got hired as manager, where I'm pointing out at the camera. You remember that oh, one? Oh, really? Posted that? Yeah, You've yeah. Seen I'm having, that? I'm taking some. Pro- I've, had, I've had a few problems with. Uh, Is with that, that right? That was yes. so innocuous. It was. Well, it wasn't when Homer Bailey took a picture of it and sent it out to everybody. Oh so. no! Yeah, yeah. That's no, no, I did not do that picture. You, I, that you, was were, you and I were together, <laughs> and you made me do the point. <laughs> Oh, man. Uh, hey, how's uh, Reds Fest treating you? We're almost finished. It's a riveting question, Jamie. He's got the people <laughs> have, right on the edge of the The only hard-hitting questions Wow, boy, that is a tough one. Um, you know what? It's been great. You know, the fact that we still have people here yeah. <laughs> is a testament to our Reds fans. Um, you know what? It's, I'll tell you, I, I had a hard time coming here initially simply because it was like we had such a tough year last year. Yeah, sure. Very disappointing to... Uh, to, uh, to have our fans have to go through a year like that. However, uh, they came back out, they supported us. Um, so I'm really, really pleased to be here to bear witness to, to how great the Reds fans are. Yeah, and that's that, you know, you guys give yourselves a round of applause because, you know, coming into this, and Brian, you know, it, sometimes it's the hard truth that we lost 98 games, the team lost 98 games, and you don't expect a turnout like this. 
But like you said, it's a it's a testament to the loyalty of these fans. And, you know, whatever happened in 2015, I think just not just you and the players are ready to put it behind you, but I think the fans are too. And I think you yeah. can see, like, with the turnout, like we're ready to get on to 2016 and compete. Yeah, and, and be an exciting ball club, and, and uh, there'll be some newness to us for sure. And we'll see some familiar faces. We'll have some new ones as well. I'm, I'm interested to see where we are when we get to, uh, to Goodyear and see what our roster looks like, you know, because right now there's some things that are up in the air. Uh, we know we have some exciting young pitch- pitchers that are coming, um, and I'm excited to see, uh, to see where we are when we get to, uh, to February. Yeah, we've had a lot of those pitchers, those young pitchers that you talked about, we had a lot of them here in this uh, this area over the last couple days. And are there any that stand out to you that you cannot wait to see come spring training? We we had a lot of success from a pitching perspective, you know. And I know I'll, I'll omit several people, but you know the the one one pitcher we didn't see uh, that we requ- that we acquired in the Cueto trade is Cody Reed. So I'm really looking forward to him. Amir Garrett was a pitcher of the year and a in the Florida State League, which is a huge accomplishment. I was able to see Nick Travieso yeah. pitch down the Arizona Fall League, and he was wonderful. Zach Weiss had a huge year for us as a relief pitcher and as a guy that could be rather quickly uh, finding his way to Cincinnati. So there's a laundry list of, of young pitchers. Obviously, Robert Stevenson's sure. been the talk of the organization for a long time. We'd like to see him get his way up to, uh, to Cincinnati before the season's out. Um, so, it, and the list goes on and on. We can go down to Dayton and talk about the staff they had in Dayton. It was another remarkable year pitching-wise. So we're looking forward to it. Yeah, and, and one of the themes that we've been talking about when we have these pitchers is uh, the importance of some of their stuff. Like the, the common theme it was the change-up. And I think you would be proud, uh, you know, as a former pitching coach, as the current Reds manager, to hear these guys talk about how important that pitch is to them and how – important it is for them to get better throwing their changeup. Can you give us a little bit, a little insight on why it is important for these young guys to develop and master a good changeup? I think the bigger question is, do we need microphones to do this? Because we got eight people here. That <laughs> well, are, we're recording really on a podcast, in. so. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know what? Uh, the, for, I'll tell you what I think about the changeup. If you're going to be a starting pitcher, you better have a changeup. Yeah. Uh, it's too hard to manage a lineup. And eat up the innings if you don't have a changeup. The guy, the, the pitchers that make the mista- make the biggest mistake are the ones that want to be starters that think they can pitch with a fastball and a slider or a fastball and a curveball. You need the changeup. There's very few that haven't been able to master a changeup that stay in a starting rotation. We have one, uh, Homer Bailey, who throws a split finger pitch, and you think about John Smoltz, who is pretty much fastball slider power split. Very few have made it long-term in the game without a, a good changeup, especially in today's game. So it's a necessary pitch, and typically pitchers that don't have a good changeup as they evolve end up in the bullpen. That's typically what, what happens. Yeah, and, uh, you know, you've been around the game for a while. Can you, uh, anybody in particular, I know Mario Soto had a great changeup, and then in the time that you saw Johnny Cueto and coached him, he developed a great changeup. Who else out there that you've seen that, you really thought had this is wow this is I've this is a great pitch for this guy. Well, certainly it was a it was a career maker for Jamie Moyer, who who we had in Seattle. Um, uh, the the other guy that I thought made a big difference was Brandon Webb. You know, he was such a good sinker baller in Arizona, but when he got the changeup, it was a swing and a miss changeup like Cueto. He was able to strike some hitters out when he needed a strikeout. Um, the evolution of the pitch for, for our guys. Um, if you look at Anthony DiSclefani, it's going to be a difference maker for him. Yeah. Uh, John Lamb has a good changeup, and it's, it's a difference maker. But they, you know, Michael Lorenzen, who started for us, as the changeup becomes a bigger pitch, they become more successful as starters. They really do. And it's an essential piece. It's nice to see those pitches evolve. Yeah, you mentioned Anthony DiSclefani. I think one of the things that people may not realize is as the season progressed, he started throwing a pretty effective curveball as well. Yeah, he did. And, that, and that's kind of the fun part of watching the young pitchers uh, develop is to see how their pitches mature. And, you know, my, my, my uh, first thing that I'll say to a young pitcher that comes up to the major leagues, I said, you can't find out what you need to improve upon unless you throw the ball over the plate. And as soon as you start throwing strikes, the hitters will give you the feedback. Hey, you know what? You're probably going to need a better changeup, or you're going to need to be able to throw a breaking pitch for a strike when you're behind in the count. If you don't throw it over, you never learn because you're in AAA trying to figure it out. You know yeah. that's the bottom line. 
So, so that, that's a great thing. In that situation last year, we, we were, just weren't very competitive. Well, some of these young pitchers are actually able to utilize the major league season to work on pitches that in a winning season you may not allow yourself to throw in a big league game. So um, it was great to see the evolution of Anthony and some, some of the other pitchers that came up late in the year. Well, we talked about the pitchers. Let's talk about some of the position players and some of the guys that, you know, everybody knows how good Joey Votto is as a, as a hitter. Um, Brandon's great defensively at second base. You know, Zach Coe's already got hurt, uh, but he was on his way to a career year. And it had to be tough losing a guy like not only Zach Cozart to injury, but you lose Zach. And I'm not making excuses, and I know you won't either. Zach Cozart, Devin Mezzarocco, Homer Bailey going down. How vital – I mean, that had to be a, just a, a punch to the gut, right? Well, it's a huge blow because those are impact guys on and off the field. They make our club better in the clubhouse. They make our club better on the field. Um, big blow. And I think what make, what – it created an even stronger awareness about the importance of organizational depth because you lost the guy that was going to be pitching towards the top of our rotation, number two after after Johnny, um, and, and our everyday shortstop and our everyday catcher, everyday catcher who's an all-star. Um, and fortunately, you know, Tucker Barnhart did a great job. It gave him a great opportunity to come up and play a lot. He did a wonderful job with that. Um, it created another spot for a young pitcher to come up. However, it was, you don't replace those three guys with somebody from AAA. They're just not ready to be that impactful on your ball club. Um, so, the, yeah, it was, it was some big losses. But what we're looking at now is, is players in our system that are going to be more major league ready uh, to support us if we have injuries in the future than, than at any point in time, I think, since I've been here. And that's a good thing to see. Yeah, and I think we're fully we're fully expecting Zach to be healthy for opening day. Is that right? Yeah, I think uh, the only one I would say uh, is unlikely to be on the opening day roster would be Homer. He's Homer. probably a little bit behind uh, being ready for opening day. Recently spoke to John Fay about Homer, and he was surprised like anybody else that that I think that day in the summertime when Homer got suited up or put his uh, put his gear on and. He's heading out to the field, and everybody's like, where's he going? And he started long tossing. He was that far ahead of his schedule, and I think that's a testament to how hard Homer Bailey works. How important is it to get him back on this staff next year, especially considering it's a staff full of primarily younger rookie pitchers? It's extremely important. You need, you need leadership, and sometimes you just need example setters. You know, we, we talk a lot about leadership, but you have to be able to look at a veteran player. It's a guy who has two no-hitters. He's been on three postseason teams. He, he's been a number one draft choice. He's been a highly touted guy that, that really struggled when he first got to the big league. So he's been through it all. You know, he's been through a guy. Well, this guy's supposed to be a great pitcher, and he's not pitching well, and he gets demoted, and he's out of options, and... You know, he's been through the rigors that are only going to help the young pitchers around him. So he's impactful in that way. The other thing is you got a guy that on any given day can go out there and throw a complete game shutout. He's a, he's a workhorse. He's a type of guy that when he's healthy, you can look to throw 215-plus innings. I mean, that's the message you want to send to all these young pitchers that we have uh, in the system right now is that I've said it ever since I've been here. If you're a starting pitcher, you better get ready to pitch the innings because we're not going to dump them all over the bullpen every game to, to pull your your tail out of out of the fire. So yeah, how and speaking of that, how tough was it for you to manage that team last year when you know your guy, you know your starting pitcher, no default to their own because they're rookies and you can't expect them to be, you know, lights out every time. But it had to be tough for you to manage that bullpen when your starter's only going four or five innings. That, yeah, that it, and that's, you know, I'll tell you, one of the things we're really fortunate is we got uh, Sam LeCure back. Uh, and Sam LeCure, uh, who's no longer on our, our Major League roster, brings a certain professionalism to the game and to the bullpen, and it greatly helped. We didn't have Sean Marshall, which was a big blow. We had traded Jonathan Broxton at the end of 20, towards the end of 2014. Um, it was just very difficult to, to create a leadership down there However, those guys kept coming in, J.J. Hoover, uh, Chapman, um, you know, the Badenhop, those guys, they kept taking the ball when we gave it to them, and they, and they did a terrific job under difficult circumstances. And also a credit to the position players because a lot of those games were behind early, and they kept playing hard. And that's, the, that's one of the few things that I think we can look back on last season and say that was a, a good thing organizationally is that our guys didn't quit. We played hard the whole season even though it was a tough year. 
Yeah, and, and and I you know I think even the casual Reds fan could see that you know if you're if you're if you're down early with a rookie pitcher out there, you're right. Those guys did not give up, and I think that was what one of the fun parts about last year watching that. Going back to Homer for a second, I talked to Tony Singrani. He was up here, and he had something very I thought was very interesting to say about Homer. He's a guy that can inspire you, and you can learn so much from by doing nothing but just watching him watching him prepare, watching him get ready, and watching him, you know, just own his craft. And how important do you think that is for a young guy for, like, Tony Singrani to, to say that? If Tony Singrani's seeing that, you got to be happy with the fact that Homer's doing that where other, other young pitchers are seeing it as well. Well, as a young player, you have to be open to see it. You know, it, it really is a, a position as a young player. And when I talk about young player, I'm not talking about a rookie. I'm talking about somebody that's been in the league for two or three years you still have your elders that you can learn from. And the sooner that the young guys realize that it's ears and eyes open, look at what these guys do. Look at what the successful ones do and emulate it. You know, what's wrong with emulating the really good players that do things the right way, you know? And Homer, and he learned that. I mean, again, Homer, you know, Homer's very, he's a very much his own guy. You know, he had to learn things the hard way too. But he learned them, and he's willing to pass them on. He shows up as a professional every day. You don't see Homer with taking a day off. A lot, we talk about Bronson Arroyo that way. There were no days off in a season, and that is the right message. But you also have to have the right audience to watch these veteran guys prepare and be willing to take some instruction. That's a, the harder and harder thing to do with younger players is for them to say, hey, I want to get better, and I'm willing to defer to somebody else to help me. Sure. I think another one of the bright spots of 2015 was a young man named Eugenio Suarez. How fun was it for you to watch him develop and come up and fill in for Zach Cozart, not only fill in, but to excel? Oh, he was terrific. And, you know, I'll tell you, because that was, he, we had a lot of video on Gino uh, when we were about to make that trade for Alfredo Simon. Um, and, you know, he was a defense, considered a defensive player. You know, I think he hit four home runs and in playing about half the games for Detroit the year before. Hit a few in the minor leagues, but not many. Uh, not a lot of extra base hits. Um, he was a defensive player. And so for him to come up and hit the way he did, I think he hit over 20 home runs combined, 20-something home runs combined between AAA and the big leagues. Uh, the extra base hits, driving the ball out to right center field, um, really showing, really flashes of brilliance at shortstop, even though he had a, you know, a couple of throwing errors here and there. Just gave us a, a, a real boost in a situation where we were pretty down losing Zach. Um, you know, I know Zach's coming back, and he's a stud shortstop, and he'll be out there every day, but Gino will find a way in the lineup, I'm sure. Yeah, naturally, my next question is, is he going to be seeing time in left field in spring training? Well, you know, we're going to see what we have going into spring training. I think that there's a confidence that, that uh, Gino can play many positions. And, you know, the one thing we don't know right now is who's going to be on our roster, who's going to be healthy, where the holes are going to be with our ball club. I just think he can do about anything that we need him to do um, defensively to find his way and his bat into the lineup, you know. And it doesn't mean we're shutting him down as a shortstop, but we got Zach. Zach Zach's the guy at shortstop. There's not going to be any controversy over who the everyday shortstop is, but Gino's a major leaguer, and he'll be in the lineup. One of the things going into spring training this year, which is different than kind of years past, especially in your tenure here as a pitching coach and a manager, this year the, the, the spots are wide open. You can, all the spots you get, you know, whereas before, you know, you knew who was going to be here, who was slotted here, who was going to be here. This year, to me at least, I, I don't know how you see it, but it looks wide open. It looks like you can, anybody has a chance to win any position on this team come, you know, at the end of March. Well, there's certainly a, a lot more uh, availability for spots on the team, in particular with the pitching staff. You know, um, didn't have a great deal of standout performance from our young pitchers. It was really more of a kind of a getting acclimated situation last year with our young guys. So not a lot of guys that necessarily secured a spot on the 2016 club through performance beyond probably Di Sclafani. So it's going to be a shootout for spots, and that's, and that's a good thing. Um, what I want to say is next year, I don't want to have a shootout. We want to know who's going to be on the team. Sure. We want to stay healthy because that's a sign of a team that's ready to go out there and compete and win. 
But the fun part, of course, is going to see young guys compete for spots on the ball club, and they better be, the guys that don't make the club, better be scratching and clawing in double-A and triple-A uh, to get their way back up there. And the guys that are in the big leagues are going to need to perform in order to keep those jobs. That's not the worst situation in the world. I mean, you don't want guys to be too comfortable. Right. Uh, you want to make sure that they're working hard every day to keep those jobs. Let's talk a little bit about Rysel Iglesias, another bright spot from 2015. You know, he showed signs of brilliance. He did things that nobody in Reds in a Reds uniform has done before. I think he threw, he struck out 10 guys in three straight starts. And believe it or not, that's never happened before. How great was he and how fun was he to watch last year from the dugout? He, he was terrific. He was uh, as advertised. I think the one thing we didn't know for sure when, when we signed Rysel was if he would be able to start at the major league level. Most people had, were aware of Iglesias because of his international play. And for the international team from Cuba, he was basically used as a relief pitcher, a two and three inning uh, type of reliever. And our people felt like if he had been in the draft uh, the year before, he would have been a top five pick in the draft and that we felt like he could start. And that's really what you're looking for. If you're going to draft a pitcher real high, you want a guy that's going to be a starter. Um, and he lived up to it. And he answered the question with that. Can he start? The answer to that is yes. Can he throw enough strikes? Can he get guys to swing and miss? The answer is yes. Uh, the question is, is going to be durability like yeah. any young pitchers. Can you handle the rigors of a 162-game schedule where you're taking the ball every fifth day? And like any young pitcher, that question hasn't been answered, but I, I, I'm pretty confident that he can. And he'll probably, I'm guessing, his second full year as a starting pitcher, he'll probably have a lim an innings limit again this year, I'm, I'm assuming. Um, when, does the, uh, when, do, when does he get free reign? As, as you, how does that process work? Well, you know, we try to build our starting pitchers up incrementally. And so one of the challenges to September and early October for us last year was the fact that most of the pitchers that we had 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 never pitched a season in the big leagues or may have never been in the big leagues at all. So minor league season gets over and you look at their season and they've had 145 innings or 155 innings. If you make 30 plus starts or if you're pitching in September for a major league team, chances are you're exceeding by a fairly large margin the number of innings you've ever pitched before. So... We were able to stay within our limits with every single guy, which was extremely important to us. Um, and we don't want to overtax guys in the same respect. I don't think we've proven at any point in time yet that more pitches or more innings direct, are directly related to the injuries that we're having. We still have a copious amount of arm injuries, and we're treating these guys. We're putting them in a bubble and saying, hey, we don't want anyone to get hurt. So... You know, I, I'm not as protective myself. I'm yeah. just that's I'm not wired that way. You know, for years and years, guys have thrown innings and thrown pitches, um, but we still are relatively conservative. Okay, my last topic is uh, leadership in the clubhouse. How important is it for you to see some of these young guys that have starting to become veterans take on a leadership role in the clubhouse? And do you think there's a there's a uh, a benefit for, or do you think there is such thing as playing well when you have good clubhouse chemistry? Well, I think it makes things a lot easier. And you could, the, the opposite side of that is, you know, the great Oakland teams of the sure. of the early 70s. They said they were punching each other out right before game <laughs> time, and then they took the field and won the game, you know. So uh, it's a different day and age, and I think it's harder and harder to feel like it's a responsibility of an individual to go out there and constantly be doing things in the best interest of the team. Um, you know, guys want to... They want to do what they do and do it well and not interfere as much in the lives of their teammates. I get that. Um, but we just have to say, hey, when things aren't going right, we just want our, our, our veteran guys to take those young guys under their wing and say, hey, listen, this is how we do it here. This is, we've been with the Reds for a long time. This is how we do it. This is what's acceptable. This wasn't isn't. This what isn't. And they just really, when they're on their own, you know, the, the coaches and the managers should be responsible for holding guys accountable. But when they're together without the staff in the clubhouse or someplace else, I think they need to push each other a little bit to, uh, to make sure that we do things the Reds way, which is the right way. And lastly, we have uh, Billy Hatcher goes over to the third base coaching box. Freddie Benavides is over at first, and you have a new pitching coach, Mark Riggins. Can you tell us a little bit about those moves, not, in, not just the, uh, the coaching sw swap from Hatch going to third, but tell us a little bit about Mar Mark Riggins as well. Yeah, yeah, we got a, uh, two new coaches, uh, Tony Jaramillo, who will assist Don Long with the hitting, uh, longtime uh, coach in our minor league system, uh, most recently in AAA and does a real nice job. And our guys are really, really connected to Tony. They, they love him. Un just an unrelenting worker. 
And then Mark Riggins, who has a long, distinguished uh, player development background. He's got two years of major league service time, a year as a bullpen coach for the St. Louis Cardinals uh, back in the 90s, and a year as the Cubs pitching coach in 2011. Uh, we were able to grab him immediately uh, once we promoted our pitching coordinator, Mac Jenkins, to assistant pitching coach for 2012. Um, and Mark has been terrific in helping us really build a very strong pitching foundation in our minor leagues. And his uh, affiliation and connection to our young pitchers is only going to make their transition to the big leagues smoother. Very good. And uh, you you confident with Hatch over there waving his arm in? <laughs> oh, yeah. Now, listen. Listen. There's, I'm looking forward to this. I am looking forward to this. I mean, uh, Pete, you know, it's funny because that third base position, third base coach is very polarizing. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, yeah. And, you know, I'll tell you, the, one of the best of all time that I've ever is Mark Berry. And Mark Berry, you, he was abused over there at yeah. third base, not just on the road, but at home, too, because people always want send them, send them. If someone gets thrown out, what are you sending them for? It's a thankless job, And right? Hatch is one of the most beloved people here in <laughs> Cincinnati that I've ever seen. I mean, people love him. Uh, so we're going to test that out, put him over at third base, and see if everyone's still agreeable with young Hatcher by the time the season's over. They might turn on him like a rabid dog, as Marty would say. I, we're just expecting perfection, <laughs> right? 100% yeah, success 100%, rate. 100%, yeah. Or he's out of here. Brian, you're a gentleman, uh, one of my favorite people in this game, and I'm not just saying that because you're sitting next to me and I work for the Reds, but I really admire your work and the way you conduct yourself, and it's a pleasure to work for you, and I'm very happy for you to stop by here. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Jamie. I hope you folks get to know Brian more during the 2016 season. He's an incredible man, and he'll always tell you how it is. Brian is one of the brightest guys in the game, and I always enjoy seeing him on a regular basis during the baseball season. Next on the Better Off Red podcast is one of our favorite former Red Lakes, Aaron Boone. Aaron, who's parlayed his successful playing career into a successful broadcasting career, was recently named to the ESPN Sunday Night Baseball team, along with another new addition to the booth, the very talented Jessica Mendoza. Aaron and Jessica will serve as analysts in the booth with the returning play-by-play man, Dan Shulman, and dugout reporter, Buster Olney. Aaron talks to us about his new co-workers, the transition from the field to the booth, and his time in Cincinnati as a member of the Reds. Here's Aaron Boone. Aaron Boone joins us here on the Better Off Red podcast. Aaron, welcome, and thank you for uh, coming on with us. Yeah, I'm glad I get to be on with you, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, we've had a lot of your uh, a lot of your 1999 Reds teammates on the show. We've had Vaughn and Dimitri and Pokey, and you know a lot of the, a lot of those guys that and that like to talk about that year and. Of course, you're always uh, always been one of our favorites here as well. So uh, we we wanted to get you on the show. And first and foremost, congratulations on the new gig. Aaron was just named as a as an a, an announcer on the Sunday Night Baseball team on ESPN. Coming up with uh, with of course Dan Shulman and Jessica Mendoza and Buster Buster Olney. So uh, congratulations, Aaron. Uh, thank you. It's um, it's it's an exciting opportunity for me. Um, you know, now getting ready to start, I guess, about my sixth or seventh year in doing this and to get the opportunity to be, um, part of Sunday night baseball, um, it's a great stage and, um, and obviously the highlight game for us each and every week during the regular season. Yeah, no doubt about it, and it's got to be a, also a pleasure to be working with a pro like Dan Shulman. He's he's always been one of my personal favorites, and not only is he a great baseball announcer, he's a great college basketball announcer as well. But uh, what's your relationship with, like with uh, with Dan? Yeah, I've been pretty spoiled in that the first year when I was 
when I was done playing, my first year, uh, you know, getting in and covering baseball for ESPN, I got to do Monday night baseball from the start. And that first year was with Dan Schulman. So that's how I broke into broadcasting was with a guy like Dan Schulman, got to spend a full year from him and with him. And, um, you know, it kind of started what's been a really great friendship between the two of us. Um, now the last two years I've done the entire postseason and, and on through the world series with him on, on radio. So, um, you know, we've had a lot of experience doing games together, but also have built a really strong, uh, friendship over the last six, seven years. Yeah. I can see why he's a very likable guy and he's, you know, he's a, he's a pro's pro as they say. And I think it helps too, when you, when you, when you're working with a guy that knows the game as much as Dan does? Yeah, you know, first off, I mean, he's a great, you know, has a great voice. He's a great broadcaster. Um, but then, you know, his love is for baseball, and, mm-hmm. and he loves the game, and he's invested in the game. And, um, you know, it comes across when you're with him. It comes across with his on-air knowledge. And, uh, you know, really, I just feel very blessed and fortunate to get to work alongside with them and get to, you know, have this next career, so to speak, and and get the opportunity to work with with a great in our field. Right. And let's talk a little bit about Jessica Mendoza. She made a lot of uh, she made a lot of news uh, for, you know, her involvement in the booth during the postseason. I thought she was fantastic last season. And I think it's I don't want to overstate it by say, saying how important it is to have a woman in the booth, but in my opinion, I think it I think it is important, and I think she does a wonderful job. I think it wasn't just because she's a woman, you know, that some of these critics, you know, kind of talk about. But I think she's just really good, and I think it's a it's about time to have a woman in the in the booth. And can you talk a little bit about how excited you are to not only work with Dan but work along with Jessica Mendoza as well? Yeah, I think she's going to be a star at this if she, if she wants to be. Um, you know, she's she's very smart. Um, she's very talented. Obviously, her softball background speaks for itself. I mean, she's a gold medalist and All-American and, you know, just a great softball player in her day, which, you know, obviously there's the challenge there of bridging that gap between mm-hmm. now covering baseball and really articulating things. But I think what people are going to see is, first off, a really smart person that's really invested in the game, that wants to be great at, at, at her analysis. And I think what people are going to see that, that kind of followed the story and followed her a little bit last year is they're going to see a person that's way more knowledgeable going into this year. I think there was this perception that she was just kind of waiting in the wings, kind of an insider always covering the game when she was really more covering softball Mm -hmm. would dive into baseball every now and then was, was very much involved in the college world series. Now she's going to be living the game. She's Mm -hmm. going to be waking up every day and and covering the sport. And she's already invested herself in a lot of relationships with front office people, writers, players. And I think that's all going to manifest itself this year in even greater analysis. And, you know, you know, like Dan, you know, I don't know her as well as I know Dan, but I've gotten to know her now the last couple of years. And, um, you know, spending time with her at the College World Series, spending yeah. some time with her talking about baseball. And I think she's going to do great. She's a great person. And, and I'm really looking forward to just how amicable and, and, and how much fun I think it is going to be to go to work and what should be a great Sunday night booth, at least from a personality standpoint, for us working together with one another. Yeah, no doubt. When I first, you know, I, when I first got acquainted with Jessica's work was uh, obviously last year when she was in the booth during the postseason. She had me hook. I hooked at like probably three pitches in, just by the her pitch recognition. She knew what a slider was and what, you know, an off-speed pitch was. And, you know, there are a lot of male broadcasters in this game today that don't, that can't do that. And I think she's fantastic. And, you know, I'm very much looking forward to to the three of you in the booth uh, in 2016. Yeah, and and I've talked to so many people that even have admitted to me that they've 
you know, gone in with a skeptical eye, like, all right, what's this going to be like? And and already, the, for the most part, she she's won them over with something she said that man that was that was spot on or Mm -hmm. or that was really smart what she said or really perceptive and like i said i think that's only going to improve as she is now kind of living and covering the game now i think it's only going to sharpen her analysis and i think look she's going to walk in the door with some skeptics there's no question about Mm -hmm. it but i think that's going to be more the minority and i think over time it's going to be more and more the minority of people that that are skeptical of what she's bringing. Sure. And would you agree that she's kind of an olive branch to the to the casual female baseball fan as well? That she, that somebody that can sit down and say, you know, their boyfriend's sitting around watching a game on Sunday night, and somebody like somebody like that who can get into the game from Jessica's point of view as well. You know what? I really hope so. Uh, I mean, because that is important. You know, I mm-hmm. mean, that's you know when you think of you know, like the machine that is the National Football League and all the people that, you know, it's just kind of part of their life and they watch games. And, and even, you know, the researchers say that, that women are, are way into the National Football League. Maybe it is something where, you know, just a casual Sunday night regular season, one of 162 games, you know, maybe Jessica does broaden that audience a little bit. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I, as I mentioned before, I've had Dimitri Young on this podcast in the past, a former teammate of yours. He went on record on this podcast as saying that you are his most favorite and probably the best baseball an, an, analysis out there. And uh, I just wanted to get your uh, get your opinion on Dimitri and his comments. Well, I, I paid Dimitri to say that. <laughs> um, you know, Dimitri is obviously a very good friend, was a great teammate of mine. Not only with the Reds, but then I got to play with them later uh, in both of our careers with the Washington Nationals. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very appreciative anytime a teammate, you know, says kind words like that. And you, and you touched on it in the open, you know, that '99 team, and um, you know, still I'm just I'm still always surprised at how many, you know, Cincinnati fans, younger fans that have a connection really to that team that. You know, um, it was certainly, I think, whether you talk Little League, uh, college, high school, pro, Major League Baseball, whatever, for me, that 99 season, the funnest year I've ever had playing baseball. And a lot of that had to do with some of the teammates, Dimitri being one of those, that, that made it so much fun. So let me get this straight. You hit one of the most memorable home runs in baseball history for probably the most recognized team in baseball history to send your team to the World Series, and you're saying the 1999 Reds team was your favorite year playing baseball? Yeah, I, I, there's, I don't think it's close. There's not a funner time I've ever had in my life playing baseball than playing on that 99 team with that group of guys. Um it was a special thing to be a part of, um, to win 96 games. Um, I think it was mid late May where we were still under 500. Mm-hmm. And then once we got it rolling in late May, it was just, we knew we were coming to the ballpark to whip you every day. And we had a lot of fun doing it. Well, that's, that's, that's a great, great compliment to that team. And, you know, everybody that we've talked to around Cincinnati, uh, players and coaches and things like that, they, like you said, they remember that team, I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that the team wasn't very successful leading up to that year, and it was kind of a surprise after the offseason acquisition of Greg Vaughn, who kind of really became a leader for that team. Would you agree that he was probably the leader of that clubhouse? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, Lark and, and the presence that he always was, but I think Greg Vaughn came in and really took it upon himself to kind of say I am going to be the vocal leader of this team I am going to show us the way and because we had so many young position players at the big league level obviously myself included but you think about Sean Casey Pokey Reese myself mm-hmm. Mike Cameron you know to meet you, all these guys were were young in their major league career and to have an everyday player like Greg Vaughn really assert himself kind of as that vocal leader also being highly productive on the field um, 
you know, he was he was a big reason why we gelled so well on and off the field. And on the teams, the, the successful teams that you played for, was that kind of a necessity necessity to have someone like that in the clubhouse or maybe just a good clubhouse in general? Can you talk a little bit about the importance of that? Yeah. Look, I, I think, I think um, a good clubhouse can look a lot of different ways, it, you know, and it's not always, you know, you know, hugs and kisses and kumbaya and everyone loving each other. That doesn't necessarily make a great clubhouse. Mm-hmm. But in this day of age of advanced, you know, analytics and, and advanced metrics and, and saber metrics and all this, which which I'm a big, I buy into it. You know, I'm a big believer in it. I, I, I you know, I take those numbers seriously. Mm-hmm. I think it's an important part of putting a team together. But I also think... Uh, clubhouse culture in a game where you play 162 games the culture of a team the culture in that clubhouse i think is a very important part of a team being successful and like i said i think there's a lot of different ways to do it it doesn't always look the same Mm -hmm. but there's no question that that team had a special thing that guys you wanted to come and play for the guy next to you each and every day we came with a swagger we came with a purpose we came and had a lot of fun and it all started with the people that gelled together in that clubhouse yeah absolutely and uh, you know it seems like you're echoing the sentiments of a lot of uh, a lot of guys that we've had here on the show uh, and it, it doesn't necessarily like you said it doesn't mean you're not a stats guy if you appreciate a good clubhouse culture it's just something one of those valuable things in my view that you can't quantify but that's, you know, again, not a knock on the analytics. It's just something that's, uh, you know, apples to oranges. Absolutely. You know, I take a look at, like, a team like the St. Louis Cardinals, who over the years have obviously been so successful, so consistent, seems like year in and year out. And I think what they do is their culture that, that gets passed on from generation to generation, from leader to leader, where it's just a workmanlike their culture is just a little bit better than the next average team. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. it just continues to pass itself down. And people that come into that organization, for example, I think it's swallowed up in that culture, which ultimately is a winning culture. Right. And, and that's a great example, the St. Louis Cardinals. In, in your opinion, is that the players or is that, you know, a combination of things? Because look, you know they've had they've gone through a couple general managers they don't obviously don't have the the same players on that team coaches come and go so how do you how how is that how is that culture lived on for you know decades now well i think it is i think when you have your best players or your most influential players um that are also your best people and your and the leaders of a culture um then it starts to happen generationally, and it can start to get passed on. So you see right now, like the Adam Wainwrights, the Yadier Molinas, the Matt Holidays, and Matt Carpenters now starting to continue to pass that on to the next generation. So the people that come up through that organization know how to prepare, know how to play, you know, know the importance of that that culture, and it just kind of keeps repeating itself when you pass it on to quality people. Yeah, Aaron Boone's here with us on the Better Off Red podcast. Aaron, let's switch gears a little bit and talk about your former team, the Cincinnati Reds. I know that you uh, you, you still follow the team. Obviously, I think your job kind of dictates that. But you know, even when you're not working a Reds game, do you still keep an eye on the team and the, their progress? Oh, absolutely. I mean, look, I, I identify myself as the Cincinnati Red. Um, I love my time there. Um, I love the organization. I love living there. I love being a part of the city. So it's absolutely who I identify myself with. And frankly, you know, as you know, as a baseball, when you when you play the game and now covering it for ESPN, you know, honestly, you don't really care about really who wins or loses. Mm-hmm. But the fact is, I always want the best for the Cincinnati Reds. I want them to do well. I would love for them to get back and and win a world's championship and those kind of things so i absolutely follow them and following now um what's what's kind of the start of a a rebuilding process or a retooling process that i think 
um, is necessary and, and the timing is right. So you would say this organization's on the right track for success in the future? Yeah, I think it was. I, look, I, I think when you're talking about the National League Central now, this mm-hmm. is you, you can't you can't be mediocre in this division anymore and expect big things. I mean, when you talk about what the Cubs have now built themselves into and, and look like what they're going to look like now for probably the next decade, they have a chance, I think, to be one of the top organizations in baseball. Obviously, what the St. Louis Cardinals are year in and year out what the Pittsburgh Pirates are starting to build into and, and the foundation that they've now laid, there's no, you know, mediocrity is not going to get it done in the National League Central, not only this year, but I think in the year, in the foreseeable future. And I think for, for the Reds, you know, as a middle market team, I think it's important that they kind of take a step back, try and build this thing back up from, from the minor league system, from a foundation and, and start to hopefully speed up which, uh, a rebuilding process that I think is necessary for them to have started. Can you tell us specifically some of the things that they've done, maybe some of the acquisitions or you know uh, subtractions even, if you want to talk about that, 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 that the team has made that you feel that you're happy about, maybe comfortable about, and you know that, 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 that looks like the team's going to uh, profit from in the future? When you're talking about some of the deals that they've now already made for multiple players, it's hard. It's hard to know for sure because at this point, most of the guys that they've gotten them back are prospects. Mm-hmm. So, you know, they can be. Who knows what they're going to end up being? But obviously, now that they're starting to accumulate that process, those prospects, and build up the cupboard, and build up the minor league system, and build up the depth of that minor league system to give your up yourself an opportunity to you know hopefully emerge out of that group more of an opportunity to to have a to have impact players emerge and then as you get some significant impact players you know early in their careers then it then it becomes when do you start supplementing them with free agency through mm-hmm. trades when do you start now okay taking it to the next level and i think that's the challenge and that's the art going forward for the cincinnati reds have you met dick williams yes i know dick well and i've had some really good conversations with him over the years um you know and, and we've talked about the team you know a couple of years ago at the winter meetings just in and um you know so not surprising that he's he's come into the position now that he is and I think we're going to start to see his vision a little bit and his imprint on this thing I think where he's felt the need that hey we need to build rebuild this thing a little bit and retool the minor league system so that look foundationally that's where it's got to come from Mm -hmm. especially from a middle market team and I think he has that vision I think we'll start to see that and hopefully he'll start to get returns sooner rather than later yeah, now your father was a manager here in Cincinnati, and is that something that you've ever thought about maybe transitioning to maybe later in your uh, broadcasting career if if a managerial opportunity presents itself? Is that something that you wouldn't mind getting into? You know, sure. Yeah, I mean, I've always, you know, there's always a part of me that, you know, misses putting on a uniform, misses being a part of a team and trying to build something um, you know, trying to kind of chase down a championship. You know, ultimately you miss doing that. People say with my job all the time, well, you never win or lose. You know, you never lose any games. Well, sometimes it's fun to, you know, compete and yeah. and have that, you know, fear of losing a little bit and, and trying to chase down, you know, building a championship team. And, you know, when I got into broadcasting, which which I love, and and I I very much could see myself doing this, you know, forever. Um, but it was a hard decision for me whether to join a major league team from a front office standpoint, from mm-hmm. a coaching standpoint, or to go this route. But yeah, I would always leave the door open to uh, to getting back on the field, to managing someday, to being a part of a front office. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and you know the guys that I've talked to on the, on on this podcast from that '99 team, it just seems like you guys. I mean, 
there could be maybe 10 guys from that team would that would make great managers yourself included it i think that was another part of the success of that team was just how how you guys could articulate the game on the field i think i think it's amazing and it was just such you guys just gelled it was almost like the perfect storm and you know we talked to i talked to dimitri and he would make a great manager i think pokey reese was talking about you know coaching his high school team with the uh with the uh you know desire to possibly work his way up through the minor leagues as a manager i think danny graves would be a great pitching coach if not a manager so i think you come from a, a great not only your your family background, but as well as the teammates that you played with. Well, you know, when you leave the game, um, you know, I think the things you look back on most fondly are the people you got to play with and the relationships you got to forge. And, um, you know, there's no question that, you know, I look back on fondly at thinking about all the awesome teammates I got to play with um, and, and that 99 team and a lot of my Reds teammates uh, are front and center on that list. Yeah, yeah, and that's uh, that's you know a compliment to them and a compliment for that organ for the, for the, the the time of the organization and the the folks that were part of it. Now, Aaron, how, yeah, that's a, yeah, that's go ahead. another thing. Excuse me, Jamie. That's another thing. You know, <clears throat> you know, with the Reds kind of now, okay, hitting the reset button, going through a little bit of a rebuilding process. You know. The 99 team is a great example of accumulating young talent and the right talent kind of coming to fruition at the right time. So you never know when that process really can get sped up mm-hmm. or or you can, you know, kind of surpass expectations. Certainly we went into that 99 season. No one expected us, you know, to do any significant damage. And 96 wins later in the right blend of, <laughs> of young talent and, and – and, and veteran, you know, quality impact veterans, you know, and, and it turns into uh, a sped up rebuilding system. Yeah. Yeah. And, and speaking of that, are there any guys on this team? Uh, the first one that comes to my mind, and he's probably going to be playing your old position in 2016 is a Eugenio Suarez. Uh, you got any, uh, you know, comments regarding a Eugenio? He seems like a very good young talent who can play defense and can hit the long ball. Yeah, and, and I think he's shown that. He's shown that he, he's going to be a very good offensive player, obviously the ability to play short as well. Um, and now he's going to get that opportunity to, to get that full season of at-bats and to see what he can do. And now does he, as an everyday 550, 600 at-bat type guy, first of all, is he capable of being an impact offensive player with those kind of at-bats? Mm-hmm. You know, what What step does Billy T- Hamilton take? We're going to see some of these young players now that you have questions about that are going to get an opportunity to play on an everyday basis. Can they become impact players and establish themselves as cornerstones of this rebuilding process and of the future of the Cincinnati Reds? And that's one of the great things about when young players do get an opportunity now, you find out, who are going to be the building blocks? Who are going to be the pillars that when it comes time now to start adding uh, veterans or start adding free agencies or going out to supplement a roster, because young players get an opportunity, you now find out who those cornerstone players are going to be. On the pitching side, would you add Anthony DeSclafani and Rysel Iglesias to that list? Yeah, I mean, and what, what you're seeing is guys that have had success um, and now we'll get the opportunity, okay, a full season. How are they now as they are slotted in now as a starting rotate, as a starting pitcher? How are they when they are getting now 200 innings? Can they be those guys that can help anchor a rotation going forward so that in a year from now, in two or three years from now, are they a significant part of what you think could be a championship club? Now we're going to find out if they are indeed those players because they are going to get those innings. They are going to get those opportunities to really establish themselves and tell you uh, what kind of a piece they are for a future. You talked about it a little bit earlier about your uh, your transition from the field to the broadcast booth. Can you tell us a little bit about that, about some of the things that were most difficult for you as far as 
becoming a young broadcaster as opposed to a veteran baseball player? Wow. Um, all right. So I, you know, I, you know, I grew up. Obviously, my dad played really my 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 entire life. He was in the big league. So I grew up, you know, listening to Philly games when I was a kid. Listening to Harry Callis and Richie Ashburn. You know, oh, yeah. I went to bed no. to them. So so I feel like this. I guess broadcasting thing always, you know, was a part of my life or I was always interested in it. And then going to Cincinnati and you have the great Marty Brenneman and, and I still to this day now, especially with satellite radio, when I'm home during the season and driving kids around or running carpools, there's nothing I love more than turning on a game on the radio. Mm-hmm. And if it's a Reds game, to hear Marty Brenneman call a game, I love that. I, I have an appreciation for broadcasting and, and I guess, the art of it all. You know, I guess growing up, I always had an interest. You know, when I was in junior high school and my brother was in high school, he played Connie Mack baseball where they um, went to the Connie Mack World Series in Farmington, New Mexico, and we videoed it all, mm-hmm. and me at whatever, 13, 14, 15 years old, was was the guy calling the game. <laughs> the guy filming it would have me calling the game. So I've always had this kind of interest, I think, in, in the broadcasting side. Um, you know, that being said, then you got to just get thrown to the wolves when mm-hmm. you go sign with ESPN right out of the game. And so it's kind of learning on the fly and learning, you know, to find your voice, to kind of how to be, you know, concise in your comments, how to say something without using a lot of words, how mm-hmm. to say something in short, um, short time bits of time with mm-hmm. without with, and with making a point in a short amount of time with with less words. I think that's always something I'm trying to do. Um, and then you know, when you're doing games, just finding that rhythm with with the play by play. If you're in the booth with a third person you know kind of not stepping on each other and kind of finding that kind of rhythm that you you have to develop to to establish a really good broadcast team yeah has your relationship with current players changed at all now that you're in the booth um i I mean i think a little bit yeah i mean you know i think you're always still an ex-player and I, i think players you know, still look at you and have a different kind of respect for you because you did play. Um, But yeah, at the same time, you know, you are on that media side now to some degree. And at times you have to say things that may not be popular or, or you may have to say something that appears critical. So, you know, sometimes you got to toe that line a little bit with Mm -hmm. players, but I think it's important to always continue to have the relationships. And I've been pretty fortunate. The relationships I have now with players are still very good, very strong. But look, I'm five, six years removed from playing the game. I'm in my forties now. So, you know, I am a little different from them now. So, Mm -hmm. uh, but, but, but I think that's healthy and that's been a lot of fun to, to kind of develop that next level of the relationship now that I'm on this side of things. Yeah. yeah. Well, before we let you go, the news broke this morning that Pete Rose is going to be inducted into the Reds Hall of Fame in June. Uh, do you have any comments on that? Any any thoughts about Pete getting in finally to a Hall of Fame? Yeah, I'm really excited about it. Um, it you know, put a smile on my face when I did see that on uh, Twitter this morning. Um, I think it'll be such an exciting time in Cincinnati this summer. Um, the buildup to him going in, the buildup to them being able to retire his number now, it seems very fitting for me that um, that the Reds and Pete get to do this. And uh, I'm really excited. And hopefully I'll even have the chance to be there and uh, and get to witness it. Yeah, that's. Uh, we hope that you're here too as well. Aaron Boone, we uh, really, really appreciate taking your time out tonight to talk to us with the on the Better Off Red podcast. I know you're busy, especially over the last week. Now that you're uh, the, the news broke that you're you've got a new gig, and we're really excited to see you on TV on Sunday nights with Dan Schulman and Jessica Mendoza. And uh, just again, congratulations! It couldn't happen to a, a better 
broadcaster and a, 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 a good man as well. So thank you, Aaron, and uh, good luck in 2016. Jamie, continued success with the podcast. Thanks for having me on, and I uh, look forward to seeing you down the road this summer. My pleasure, my friend. We'll see you later. Okay, thanks, Jamie. Aaron is one of those guys who's almost annoyingly good at everything he takes on. He's always, always been one of my favorite people to work with and be around during his time as a player and now as a broadcaster. I have no doubt he's going to continue to build a legacy as one of the best TV analysts in baseball. The sky is the limit for him, and I couldn't be happier. The music you heard on the podcast this week was courtesy of Half Moon Run and their latest album, Sun Leads Me On, which is available now on iTunes, and I highly recommend that you pick that one up ASAP. Thank yous go out this week to Brian Price, Aaron Boone, Michael Skarka, the Cincinnati Reds, and my pal Lisa Braun. A very special thanks to the world heavyweight champion of podcast technical directors, Nick Prince, without whom this podcast would not exist. That's all from BOR headquarters. Thanks for joining us. I'm Jamie Ramsey. Expect good news. Turn your love way up inside.